Hi there. Welcome to Stick It Out, a podcast about life, death, and the caregiving both require. I'm your host, Mr. Milton Bananas. I've been the primary caregiver to my wife for about three years now. My dear Ethel was born with cystic fibrosis, had a double lung transplant in 2007, and is now in need of a second double lung transplant after her body began rejecting those lungs in late 2020 for reasons no one is entirely clear on. In this episode, I'm going to tell you about our recent trip to see her transplant team at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center to give a sense of how these kinds of trips feel as a caregiver. But let me give you the good news first. At this point, she is a good candidate for the transplant list, but there are one or two things that they still need. Being put on the list for an organ transplant requires a team of doctors to have a variety of, like, snapshots of health at this time. We didn't get to meet with one of those docs. Not our fault, and more on that later. But he will meet with her via telehealth soon. The trip itself was hard on Ethel, as traveling always is these days. After we returned home, she said she'd felt as though it was harder to breathe than before we left. I did what I call my armchair expert triage question barrage, if I'm allowed to use that out here in podcast land, and decided she was probably just tired from the trip. I kept an eye on her, though, too, as often as I could spare them, and after a good day's rest, she was right back to her usual self, and has been ever since. And now, on to the tale of the trip. Unfortunately, I don't sleep very well on the nights before we leave for Pittsburgh anymore. Though we used to enjoy our trips and sometimes make a little vacation out of them, Pittsburgh has been the locale for so much bad news over the past three years. So much fear and heartbreak. Long, brightly lit endless hallways, streets with too many turns and way too little light. Such is the nature of slowly losing a loved one, and I suppose it just wears on a person. My therapist said I should try a sleep aid, but that's something that I know I can get all too used to all too easily. Anyway, on the night we had to leave, I got about four hours of sleep. Up at 7 a.m., so tired I don't even know what words are, Ethel has pulmonary rehab in town here at 8 a.m., He doesn't feel comfortable driving anymore, so I go wherever she needs to go. There's not much for me to do while she's at rehab, but I use the time to read the news and chat with some friends. After rehab, we had to drop our dog off to her parents, who were supposed to have picked him up the day before but never did. Then we went back home. Ethel really needed some sleep, and so I helped her get settled and comfortable. Side note, As your lung function drops, going to bed requires catching your breath before you lie down. It was about noon. I needed sleep too, but that's not how things go when you're a caregiver. Instead, I packed up my own bag, I packed up her meds, and readied some other things that I knew she'd want, including a carry-on bag that we call the pharmacy. It has extras of everything and usually a cat sleeping in it that has to be coerced into staying home. I also made sure her oxygen situation was set for the trip. She has a portable concentrator that she carries on her shoulder like a purse, 
and a large concentrator that we use mostly in the house, along with about 25 feet of oxygen tubing. She'll use the smaller unit in the car on the car charger, and we'll take the larger one with us for use in the hotel room. And I always make sure we have some backup tanks of O2 in the car as well, just in case. With all of that done, I was surprised to learn I had about 90 minutes before I'd have to go wake up Ethel. Wanting to save time and energy, I just pulled the cushion off the papazan in my office onto the floor and wadded up a blanket for a pillow. It was a rare and glorious nap for yours truly, my friends. I woke up at 3 p.m. It was time to get going. When you're a caregiver, you have to make time to help your person pack. By way of example, here's a brief list of things that someone with 20% lung function gets winded while doing. Walking from one room to another. Folding clothes. Lifting things. Brushing her hair. We got ready in about 45 minutes. By the end, I was a sweaty mess, as usual, having run up and down the stairs several times packing up the car. However, I was glad to be underway. The drive turned out to be fairly nice. It was a pleasant day, traffic wasn't bad, and Ethel stayed awake for all of it. That's always nice, though I don't count on it, and it made a few hours on a hard day a little less lonely. Another side note, those hours in the car, chatting with her and listening to music, were my one little victory for the day. We stay at hotels north of Pittsburgh now because everything else is too expensive. I realized right away that I'd booked the wrong hotel, and I had occasion to regret it within 10 minutes of checking in for the exact reason I didn't want to book this hotel. You see, their accessible rooms are all the way around the back of the hotel from the desk, and their key cards have a bad habit of randomly not working. So out of nowhere, you're locked out of the room or the entire hotel. Right after I got her into the room and went back out to get the big oxygen concentrator, that's exactly what happened. Which meant I had to leave Ethel alone and unattended. The thing I hate doing more than anything. Because, put as simply as possible, you can't count on people to help someone even when they are in obvious need of help. At least she was in the room on oxygen. Keep your focus on that. I began the long walk all the way around the hotel. After a long drive, a long day, on very little sleep, just hoping to find someone at the front desk. At the same time, though, the whole walk, I'm telling myself, be nice to the clerk. Remember, they're human. Because I feel my usual Bruce Banner self turning a disturbing shade of green. And that anger sure is tempting to turn on someone else. Because in truth, I'm mad at myself. I'm the one who wasn't paying attention when I booked the hotel. I don't know what I was paying attention to when I booked the hotel, but obviously it wasn't booking the fucking hotel. So this inconvenience is my own fault, and I'm really angry with myself over it. Really angry. And I would much, much rather be angry at someone else, say, a hotel clerk. I'm happy to report that the rudest thing I did was just cut her off when she started telling me about her own breathing trouble sometimes. 
Like, I don't mean to be rude, except that I also kinda do. Sorry, lady. But still, that was the meanest thing I did, and I'm okay with that. I go back, finish unpacking, and then sit for a few minutes in the room. Then I set out to forage for food. I bring it back to the room, and then Ethel and I just ate in bed and turned out the lights around 10. I didn't fall asleep until 2. The following morning, I'm up at about 5.30 because when I'm tired and stressed, my stomach and lower GI tract decide to be bitchy, needy little attention whores. By the time we'd gotten ourselves around to the hotel breakfast, I'd puked about six times. Or really, like three times, and then three times of just dry retching, which is just a wild amount of fun. At breakfast, though, Ethel chomped down about four bowls of Fruit Loops, which did my tired heart some good, as she hadn't really been eating a whole lot in the past few days. One bit of good news from that morning came from Major League Baseball's home run derby, which happened the night before. As a Blue Jays fan, I was pleased to learn that one of our guys, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., had won the derby. Not only was that cool, but since his dad had won the derby back in 2007 playing for the Angels, they became Major League Baseball's first father and son derby winners. It's just a neat little thing. Did it mean anything to my day? No. Did it soothe my rebellious GI system? No. We'll talk about the importance of teams in a later episode, but for now, I'll just say this. When you're part of a team, a victory for any of your teammates boosts morale for the whole team. So, thanks, Vladdy, and congratulations, sir. Driving from the hotel into Pittsburgh at 7.15 a.m. is like Forrest Gump's proverbial box of chocolates, except not knowing what you're going to get runs the gamut of self-important Tesla and Beamer drivers, motorcyclists aspiring to be the reason why they are called donor cycles in the medical field, and angry-looking trucks who seem to think that a reasonably-sized sedan would be just the thing for breakfast. I know outsiders like to shit on the drivers of any given city, so I'll just step in with this observation. The singular most endemic trait of all of those who drive in and around Pittsburgh on a regular basis is that they are never, ever in the lane they need to be in. However, this isn't entirely their own fault. You see, the buildings in and around Pittsburgh have a tendency to relocate in the night. Not all of them at once, of course, that would be far too obvious. But it's not uncommon for a building to have pulled up her skirts and moved across the freeway in some hazy crepuscular hour. Or like, last night the entrance to the parking garage let you out to the south, but this morning it's to the north. It only makes sense that people don't know which lane they need to be in. That morning's drive was blessedly smooth, though. The sun was out, the trees were in full green, and traffic was chill. We made use of the commuter lane, which for some silly reason amuses Ethel, and as a fan of baseball, I always like to see that the Pirates' PNC Park was right where she was the last time I saw her. Couldn't look long, though, because up next was the improbable convergence of too many bridges that I have neither the time nor the craft to properly explain here, but in a city where no one is ever in the lane they need, 
The crossings at the improbable convergence of too many bridges probably looks from the air like Frogger's final boss level. That morning, though, we sailed through easily, and the remaining twists and turns into the Oakland area were fairly routine. There were, of course, all kinds of building relocations happening in and around the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, but the roads we needed still brought us to the door we needed. Sometimes, if you don't think about it to exactly the right degree, you can end up where you were going in Pittsburgh. We pull up to the valet and transfer Ethel into one of UPMC's wheelchairs with an O2 tank attached. Two quick notes about UPMC's wheelchairs. One, they are not very comfortable. And two, they seem to grant plus five invisibility to both rider and caregiver. Oh, and 2A, anyone with an MD seems to be granted minus five perception at graduation because they fail repeatedly against the wheelchair of invisibility every time we're here. More on that later. The first thing I do when we walk in is buy some coffee, which goes into the tumbler I brought. I've also brought a water bottle and some other things for the day. They're all in my backpack, which also helps keep things secure as we shuffle, swing, and sometimes rock and roll our way through this hospital complex. The first thing that day was a blood draw. That was a great place to start our day because it was on the same floor as the entrance. Which, I haven't mentioned this part yet, but... Things like floors and levels don't have the same meaning or logic in Pittsburgh as they do elsewhere. Like the roads, just don't think about it too much. The charge nurse at the blood lab has been there since at least 2018 when we first met her. She knows Ethel, knows her history to a surprising degree, and had set her up in a room far from all the others, knowing how at risk of infection she is. But more than that, she always makes a little time to talk to us. She always sees to the little things that Ethel might need, that extra blanket or some graham crackers. Always makes sure she's got the best people doing whatever Ethel needs. Whoever had made Ethel's schedule for the day, and more on that wise-ass later, left about two hours for the blood draw and getting to the next appointment. Ethel has a med port, which is a small, surgically implanted device which can later be accessed to draw blood and or administer IVs. Because of this, the blood draw went smoothly, and the charge nurse wished us well on our way out, knowing we were at the beginning of a long day. We had about 45 minutes until the next appointment, which was a bit of a haul and could be quite a wild ride sometimes. May as well get on with it, though. To the elevator! You see, I'm a drummer. Good drummers pay attention not only to what's going on now, but what's coming up next. And so while we're waiting on the elevator here, I'm working on what's happening when that door opens. I've got my mental map pulled up, route projected based on last known building locations, of course. I make sure Ethel's got enough of the good old O2 in the tank. I check the lids on my coffee and water. I check my watch. We got enough time. We'll start off at a shuffle. Eighth floor. Right away, we got two intersections back to back. So check those mirrors. Sharp right, a short haul with a slight incline. To a sharp left, keep an eye on those mirrors. A sharper incline. All right now, there's always a lot of doctors in this corner, and for some reason, doctors 
always fail against the wheelchair of invisibility. You gotta really keep an eye out. Okay, safe. Up a little bit more to a brightly lit bridge, a hard right, a few people, tour, and doctors, 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 everywhere. People who just stop. But it's not all bad. There's cute little transport robots. There's a wall honoring transplant donors. And one for financial donors, too. And now the decline, a rather long decline, so long it's a bit of a challenge not to lose ethyl to gravity. If my hands were sweaty right now on the grips, it really feels like that could just be all she wrote. Now we're on the third floor of a different hospital in the complex, though we were on the eighth floor and stayed more or less the same distance above sea level at the beginning and the end. Down an elevator to the first floor, which is about to let us out by a Starbucks. It is 8.30 a.m. There are doctors just no. This is why we got coffee earlier. We just passed that Charlie Foxtrot right on by. Down a long hall that's usually not too crowded. The floor here is level, and so it's a nice smooth ride. Big left turn. We go into a big open space break lounge. I steer Ethel close to the windows so that she can see a new building being born from what looks like the pit of Isengard. Another hall, another elevator. Now we're going down to S1, which I don't even know what that means floor-wise. Down another long hallway, I'll turn her to face these big double doors, press the button, and standing right here with just Ethel's slim weight on the precipice of this unbelievably steep ramp, it baffles my mind that this exists in a hospital. There are a lot of people pushing wheelchairs around who aren't in much better condition than the people in the wheelchairs. And this ramp of a few hundred yards dead ends into a concrete wall. We make it down safely and outside to an afterthought of a ramp that barely lets anyone pass. But anyway, we're almost there. Into the next building, sharp left to the elevators, up to the fourth floor, and we're here. It's about 8.45. We're 15 minutes early. Not bad. I get Ethel checked in and wheel her over to where we can sit together. She opts to sit in the waiting room chairs, which should give you a pretty solid idea of how uncomfortable the wheelchairs of invisibility are. I switch her cannula line to the wall-supplied oxygen. I'd noticed on our way in that the restock place downstairs had a good dozen full tanks, but still, you never know what's going to happen next, so I didn't want to be wasteful of the tank that we had. Since we had a little time here waiting to see the social worker, I ran my own assessment protocols. This is a brief self-care thing that I do on days like this. It's very simple. I found it on the Cleveland Clinic website, and it's just an acronym. HALT. H-A-L-T. You just ask yourself, am I hungry? 
angry, lonely, and or tired. If you answer yes to any of them, you then consider whether it can be addressed in this moment, and if so, how. I was most emphatically not hungry, but my bitch of a GI tract did seem to be settling. Maybe. I wasn't angry, as honestly I'd been kind of in the groove so far. But I was tired, for sure. Not quite running on fumes, but if I wasn't able to eat today, or worse, not able to keep anything down, this was going to get really unhealthy really fast. I gave myself a soft deadline of noon by which I would eat something. Loneliness wasn't an issue, since Ethel was right here already scoping out citizens of the waiting room to point out to me. Truth be told, no matter what's going on, no matter how bad it is or how tired I am, if Ethel is there and awake, I never feel alone. That's kind of the point of all this. There were the usual types of citizens of the waiting room. You've seen enough of them. I don't need to go into detail. Besides, I'm quite sure that I or we have been other people's citizens of the waiting room. She and I are those people who devolve into unstoppable laughter if someone sneezes in a certain way, and we've gotten some looks. So I'll choose not to cast the first stone here. But I did notice an example of the type of caregiver slash person that I'd worried about earlier who would have real trouble on that big, long ramp. I didn't know how far they'd had to walk that morning or which buildings might have moved on them, but the caregiver was fairly winded even after sitting for five minutes or so. Okay, well, anyway, now that I'd assessed where we were, it was time to see what came next. I pull out my calendar and... Remember that wise ass of a scheduler from earlier? Yeah, what a clown this guy. First, let me tell you first, he thinks this social worker is going to get to us right now in only 30 minutes. No way, smartass. That was never going to happen. This guy is such a wise guy, our next appointment is in 15 minutes. In a whole other building, and just an hour after that, he's got us right back here and it's outside both ways what a whack job this guy is huh anyway it's 9 25 so we're off oh wait no we need to be on the first floor the elevators we just got into only take us to the second floor and there's no way down by a wheelchair in this hospital so we have to go back in the elevators back up to four through the waiting room, into another set of elevators, now down to one, and outside. These wheelchairs don't handle well out here, and to make it worse, Ethel's bum is going to feel every bump. There's nurses, students, doctors, patients, bikes and scooters, and motorcycles on the sidewalks, litters, stones, someone shoestring in the way. Crossing the street tilts us to the right and back on the sidewalk and level again. Was that a sock? Somebody's launching. What the fuck's up with that guy? Tilting across a second street. Here's those rubber things on the walk. Give us some room. I'm trying to turn. Up, 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 up. A steep ramp. 180 turn. Up, up, up. Over the door jam. It's 9.32. We're on floor one. We need floor nine. Thankfully, there's an elevator. The elevator turns out to be UPMC's jankiest elevator. Ethel, myself, and the one other writer 
had at least two occasions to consider how long we were going to be stuck in there together. When it finally lunged its way up to nine, it was 9.37. I was a human sweat stain, but, you know, who am I trying to impress? That appointment was very pleasant and resulted in some good news. After they had Ethel do a few basic physical tests, they concluded that her body is in better condition than it was when we first met her. Long side note, in December, we learned quite unexpectedly that Ethel, at the tender age of 40 and nowhere near overweight nor having high cholesterol, had a 90% blockage in one of the arteries that supplies blood to the heart muscles themselves. They were just doing a routine scan at that time, but they then put a stent in, which is now why we're here today about six months later, to have given time for the stent to heal before putting her on the transplant list. So, while her lung function is a bit lower than it was back in December, her muscles are now stronger. This increases her chance of both making it through transplant and recovering from it. We left that appointment on a positive note, but we were already 15 minutes late for the next appointment, and first we had to risk UPMC's jankiest elevator, and then once again, outside. Nurses, students, doctors, patients, same noise, same bustle, same everybody hustle, just like an hour ago, but this time, the caregiver from earlier, who was out of breath in the waiting room, they're now pushing their person through this same urban tumult that we are. There's not enough room for both wheelchairs of invisibility to pass each other on the sidewalk, and of course no one's making any room, so I pull over and give them time to pass. Okay, but we've heard enough of this. Put it away. Side note, all of those drum pieces back there were written, performed, recorded, and mixed by me. And yes, I'm available for hire. You can email me at mrmiltonbananas at gmail.com with Mr. spelled out, no underscores or anything like that. mrmiltonbananas at gmail.com. We got there late, of course. I pictured that wise guy of a scheduler smiling some grim Joe Pesci smile because it gets to feel a bit personal after you've dodged your 10th carelessly slung shoulder bag in two hours. We were supposed to have met with the surgeon who will do her transplant, but because we were 15 minutes late, he became unstuck from time and vanished onto some quantum golf course, as all doctors and surgeons do. This is the person she'll meet with via telehealth later, but... To make my admittedly overwrought point about the scheduler, it is now two weeks since the appointment we quote-unquote missed, and to this point, no one has reached out about the telehealth follow-up. Ethel has lost at least two weeks of transplant list time purely because one person in one office couldn't take a moment to think about how impossible our schedule was that day. Every week, is critical right now, every day. This is something that really tortures me as a caregiver. The office that she and I trust to see her through this burned up two weeks of time that they themselves lecture us as critical. This shit truly does keep me up at night. However, back to the story. We are now able to meet with the main person, the star of the show, as it were. Her name is Tammy, 
and she's known Ethel since her first double lung transplant back in 2007. And let's just say this, there is nothing like having a really long history with a healthcare professional. This is usually the longest appointment of the day, where we go over a lot of the nitty-gritty. Tammy will ask Ethel a lot of questions. She'll listen very closely. She'll ask questions about some of the detail that Ethel will bring up. She'll look to me for answers about certain things or verification about answers on certain things. And in this particular appointment, it was all going very, very much like three people who have known each other for a while and are all caring a great deal about one person's survival. Right up until I threw Ethel under the bus. Hard. If you care, give, you already know what I mean. You've either done it or struggled with whether you should. Our persons, bless them, each and every one, right, don't always like to tell the truth to their doctors, or maybe not the whole truth, or sometimes they'll just let certain impressions be gathered that wouldn't stand up under closer scrutiny. I can never tell how intentional it is. But there are times when the truth must be outed. Sometimes I do this truly for her own good. Other times I do this so that later on, if all of this doesn't work out like I hope it will, if she doesn't make it, I will at least be able to tell myself that I did everything I could. There are times in every relationship in which you both know that you're letting things slide, that you're not being the best you could be to each other, nor to yourselves, but you've decided not to talk about it. Not just now, anyway. Yeah, well, if not now, I'm running out of time. So, when Tammy mentioned a certain home spirometry tool that Ethel should be using every day, something that costs all of $7 one time, something that will help build up her lungs muscles, help her breathe better now and later. This simple little plastic device that she could do like five breaths an hour into it every day for however many hours she can. And I heard Ethel give the impression that she uses it. I called her out. That thing is still in its plastic. Tammy gave it to you went to that closet right there over a year ago, and you haven't touched it even once. It is still in its plastic. The look on Ethel's face, oh, I hate it. For a second, there was betrayal, which I get. But then there was shame, which, well, yeah, I get that too. Neither Tammy nor I were really trying to shame her. I don't want her to feel that at all. But damn it, the stakes are pretty fucking high right now. And it's pretty simple to me. Doing this thing will help you, and you don't have much time left. But really, the reason I step in like that is that what Ethel fears the most is non-compliance. Doctors can decide that you haven't been faithful in your efforts to improve and then decide that you're not a candidate for transplant or even treatment. In other words, to her, me saying what I'd said in that office could be the thing that keeps her from getting on that list. Do I want that? No, but I do want her to have the best possible chance if she gets a transplant, and she only responds when she's scared of being non-compliant. It's the last 
tool I have in my caregiving tool bag, and it's the one I like to use the least. But I did it, and I'll do it again if I have to. And for those of you out there who are on the fence about whether you should or shouldn't, I think you know where I stand now. When we wrapped up with Tammy, someone came for Ethel and took her to do a few pulmonary function tests, which is how we know what her lung capacity is, and a few other breathing-related tests as well. It took about an hour, so I wandered around outside. Then I bought some corporate-type granola bar, which would be the first thing I managed to keep down that day. I also took some time to run assessment protocols and decided I was still just tired. I was really tired, but still just tired. The problem was, of course, that days like today could go on for who knows how long. Even after this last little test, we should be done for the day, and our plan is just to go get some lunch and then drive back to the hotel. But that can get pretty complicated in a city where buildings up and move. I went back to the pulmonary office and waited. I tried to put my head down, but waiting rooms are too weird to sleep in. There's the people, there's the weird noises, but there's really just that vibe, you know? When Ethel finished her pulmonary tests, we got a bite to eat at the hospital cafeteria. That was a relatively simple trip up just one elevator, though even right now today, I'm too tired to talk about how hard it is to get through a cafeteria with someone in a wheelchair. After we ate, and I'll admit I rushed her a little bit because I could feel my energy just draining away, we drove back to the hotel. Leaving Pittsburgh via our usual route requires threading the first, second, and third confluences of stupid. Because, again, no one is ever in the lane they need to be in. Every freeway merger is basically Schrodinger's cat if Herr Schrodinger were a hoarder. But Maxwell's demon smiled upon us that day, and the three confluences didn't take as much effort as you'd expect. We made it back to the hotel around 4 p.m. and promptly crashed on the bed. We spent some time just lying there in the darkened room, just talking about the day. As she was kind of starting to drift off, Ethel finally said, I'm so scared. Scared of what? Of not making it? Of making it? Of the recovery? All of it, she said. Me too, Ethel. Me too. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode today. We're all very busy, doubly or triply so for caregivers, and I very much appreciate you giving something I made some of your attention. I hope you enjoyed my little foray into recording my own drumming, which I think we'll call that piece The Ballad of the Bananas. It was fun to make, and I hope it was fun to you too. I want to thank my friend Butterball Pumpkinhead for giving me the push to make it. If you wish to reach out, you can email me at mrmiltonbananas at gmail.com. You can also find me on Reddit at mrmiltonbananas. Have a good day and be well out there, everyone.